Good to see you again, Jason, today, episode uh, two of Design Company Podcast. So there's a topic that we're going to discuss today that really is kind of dear to my heart, and that is the topic of legality, you know, vs. ethics. Um, sounds very philosophical, but the whole fun part of today's convo is that we're actually going to take this very philosophical question and translate that by the end of this whole thing into direct uh, revenue and costs for any organization of people working together, um, as well as having a whole framework for actually working together a bit more effectively, if that makes sense. Fantastic. Disclaimer here for everyone who's listening. I am new to this topic myself, uh, so I'm looking forward to being able to add some sort of value to it, if at all. <laughs> yes. so, secondary disclaimer, this is not legal advice and should not be as such. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Okay. On that note, let's kick off. <laughs> cool. So um, what I want to do is just you know, briefly introduce the topic of you know, laws. Why do we have laws? Um, and so kind of the structure of today's conversation is that we're going to actually run the whole concept of uh, laws through the design company framework and see what comes out. And as part of that, we're actually going to see how do we, you know, apply legality and all this kind of stuff in the normal governmental citizen sense. And how can we transpose that into the uh, private sector, companies, organizations, etc. Sound good? Fantastic. Fantastic. So, um, you know, before we even start with the first level of purpose of, you know, design company, basically, why do we do stuff? or Why does it exist? Um, I kind of just want to look at kind of a philosophical background of law. And, you know, the people that are much more philosophical than I in this sense, much more well read, but I had to look at different philosophical understandings of this. And essentially, if you boil it down, it comes to the fact that you know, in nature, it's kind of a mess. So men, uh, in the kind of philosophical, you know, non-gendered sense, exist in a state of nature, and they're either inherently good or inherently bad, but there's no fairness, and there's no real way for them to have a sort of social contract that enables them to evolve. So what we find is, you know, whether you subject to that law willingly because you see it gives you benefits, or whether it's imposed on you, um, having effectively something that exists above us, so beyond our individual um, relationship of power between two individuals, allows us to have a framework for collaboration. Uh, does that make sense so far? Yes. Yeah. Cool. So um, what I want to look at right now, let's just dive into the first level of the design company framework, so the purpose. And so what I've done here um, is look at the law and see how we can analyze it through four increasing levels of, how would I say this, of aspiration, you know? So what's the okay. kind of minimum most definition of the law? And then what would be the highest definition of that? And mm -hmm. so the first level that occurred to me was just basically the minimum baseline of what is acceptable or not. So, you know, typically, hey, it's illegal to kill people. Sounds like a pretty good thing to have. Uh, it's illegal to steal from people. So basically, you know, you take your uh, Judeo-Christian Ten Commandments. Uh, mm -hmm. I think that's a pretty good level one definition of the law. Mm -hmm. um, now, if you go up a level, level two, I mean, it's good having laws. But what if, you know, one guy kills someone and gets, you know, six-month probation and the other one gets life or death sentence? Uh, obviously not very fair. So the second level we can see there in the law is actually not just defining what's wrong and right, 
but equalizing the punishment of wrongdoing uh, so that we can ensure that you know, people are treated in a similar manner for a similar crime. Um, and when I'm saying a crime here, it's anything that's deemed unacceptable in terms of what we've established legally. Um, now that one and two is very kind of medieval in the sense that it doesn't really go very far. It's not constructive. It's just more the minimum baseline for what we want to avoid. And so this next level of integration of the law is quite interesting. And it's what we see, for example, with environmental laws. It's incentivizing actions that we see as positive. So, you know, giving you a thousand pounds for getting an eco-friendly car, um, giving you government subsidies for getting insulation in your house. I mean, I'm sure yourself, Jason, you've had a number of people knock at your door and offer to sell you windows and all these kind of roofings, etc. right? Yeah, usually in like five-figure sums that will not repay themselves for another 25 years. Exactly, but they give you a nice Excel spreadsheet with the uh, government grant. But this is actually a pretty cool thing because if you look at it at an abstract level, it's just saying, hey, let's now have action, let's now incentivize stuff instead of just punishing stuff. And the fourth level, and this is kind of what's going to introduce us to the rest of today's conversation, where I'm also looking uh, to hear from you, especially with your experience in management and consulting, is redefining the law. So there was actually an interesting case recently in France, uh, this uh, student girl called Mila. It was all over the news everywhere. Um, so essentially, she was getting harassed by some uh, students. Um, I think she was in secondary school or middle school, something like this, you know. Uh, and they were being really, really nasty to her in an acceptable way. So she, fight, she hit them back and she said, oh, you're a bunch of stupid Muslims, la, la, la. You know, very horrible stuff. Um, and I'm not legitimizing either of them. Um, what I am saying is essentially what was really interesting was the comments that occurred around that. So you had a lot of people saying, hey, you know, this girl, you know, says something against Muslims, but she has a right to freedom of expression. And the law, the, you know, judges have already looked at what was said and deemed there was no hate speech in what she said. Um, now, the way I look at that situation is, you know, obviously, first of all, that girl got harassed by a bunch of idiots who, you know, deserve to be punished. I mean, you know, you don't want to have people going around, you know, harassing people and just creating a negative society in general. But on the other hand, and this is this kind of level four consideration of law as a social contract that reflects the society we want, you had a lot of people whose only argument stopped at, well, what she said is legal, therefore that's it. And so that kind of troubles me is, you know, do we just say because there are laws, we obey to them blindly and we do not question them and we do not try and make new ones that reflect the kind of society we want. If so this is something that I've actually contemplated about quite a bit, uh, having worked with Ministry of Justice here mm. in UK that's going through a massive transformation program um, currently, which is literally two billion pounds per year uh, over the next 10 years. So it's 20 billion pound program. Uh, and it's also interesting to, to know that it's a 10-year program. So you're talking about what, it, what does justice look like in 2030 mm. as the exit of that program or conclusion of that program, which is likely quite different to justice today. Uh, and the UK judicial system, which is actually one of the, well, it's the leading judicial system in the world. That's the, those are the people who authored mm. the law in many respects, or modern-day law. Uh, they talk about that U.S. law has been basically written by British. Yeah? Uh, 
uh, uh, British Bar Association. It's called, I never remember what bar stands for. But either way, so you have this notion uh, of Supreme Court, which I've been to in UK, and the Supreme Court does not take notes. There's no secretary that takes notes of what's been discussed, even though now, nowadays they have recordings like the way we're recording it, just for the sake of record. Uh, but the reason why there's no secretary taking notes is because what is said in the Supreme Court is the final non-negotiable decision. Mm. But it was actually interesting to sit inside the Supreme Court and listen to the judges, Supreme Court judges, discuss a case. And what they were discussing, I literally spent hours listening to this, and that what they were discussing was this kind of level four stuff that you're talking about, which is, okay, the law says that, and this law says that. You realize that there's like 17 different types of law, commercial law, uh, criminal law, etc., etc., uh, family law, civil law, all that kind of stuff. Uh, and so, so they were saying, even though the criminal law says this, commercial law says this, family law says this, civil law says this, let's now discuss what is the right thing to do within this particular circumstance. Mm. And you then see that actually even different Supreme Court judges have different quote-unquote logical or psychological or even philosophical arguments as to mm -hmm. what is the right thing to do in that particular circumstance. And so that is basically uh, something that once it gets decided there, that's it. There's no more complaints about it, but it does actually go through quite profound set of uh, thinking. Uh, and it, it, is, it is the thinking at the level of very, very high, both metaphysical, physical, practical, logical, psychological, all these things uh, once, once combined. And of course, I'm sure that if you and I were sitting in that court, we could have been making our own conclusions and assumptions. The main difference is that you and I don't necessarily know the commercial law, civil law, uh, family law and criminal law, right? Which theoretically, at least, these Supreme Court judges do know or they have their experts sitting beside and actually kind of co constantly flicking through the books and saying, actually, you know, sir, I, I'm not sure that, that what you just argued there complies with this particular rule here that I've studied for seven, eight, ten years, uh, you know, in depth as an expert. So that's kind of like the, the way it works in the Supreme Court. And of course, I was thinking a lot about how that process can be streamlined. But I think that's really why in the ancient times where when Plato lived and all these philosophers lived, they were effectively like Supreme Court judges that kept on coming up with these, uh, what would be like metaphysical, or wise man, uh, you know, guidelines let's say and this is why there are guidelines in design versus laws and rules because guidelines are there to like basically the law is there to be followed for most part and mm. guidelines are there to be broken for the most part <laughs> um well yeah i mean i would say maybe this is the entrepreneurial side of me speaking but actually if you look at the british law i mean it's really interesting what you said 
because it's it's a bit like entrepreneurship, which is an experience-based uh, learning curve, you know? So they don't just have these laws defined, you know, in the parliament and then applied. What's really cool, the common law system in the UK, is that actually judges are creating the law in real time based upon new evidence, cases, etc. Um, and there's, what, there's one other really interesting aspect, actually. You have to go 200 years back. I don't remember which of the American uh, founders said that, uh, the, the founding fathers, but he essentially had this idea that any law that is created should only really be valid for 15 or 20 years so that people would not be subject to the tyranny of their ancestors. Um, and so that's what I find quite interesting is actually I think even laws are made to be broken, um, not in the, you know, go break the law sense, but in the sense that we shouldn't just stop at, is this illegal or illegal, but does this make sense for the greater good of people? And if so, how can we advocate for this new way, either a law to be abrogated or a new law to take its place? Um, so Yeah, correct. And so this is why I say uh, change is not the ultimate constant or uh, what's this? like change is the only constant, they would say. Actually, I'd say change is the ultimate variable because everything changes all the time. And this is the reason why designed company framework and model is there to constantly alert us to the changing nature of what is really going on. So uh, an example here is, I don't know who, who brought this up in the past, but they're talking about how, uh, was it Moses who came up with the Ten Commandments, right, in Christianity. And uh, yeah, this is like, these are metaphysical stories, but basically there's like Moses climbed on top of the mountain and, and came up with this tablet of Ten Commandments. And actually what he did was in practical sense, what he did was to spend loads and loads of time in the marketplace, observing what people do, noticing patterns, okay, taking notes of them and so on, and extrapolating the 10 things that work no matter what. And then he wrote it down. And then when he spoke it back to people from this mountaintop, which is kind of like a, a metaphysical symbol of I'm at a higher level of thinking than mm -hmm. you, uh, or more extrapolated, more abstract, more kind of wise, it, it works for a long time. When he spoke that back to the people, it made sense. Why? Because the people were already naturally doing that anyway. Yeah. Uh, it's like, it's like speaking to a bunch of ants in an anthill saying, you are the gatherer ant, you are the warrior ant, you are the, I don't know, feeder ant or whatever. And they're like, yes. You know, it's like, yes, that's how it, it's just somebody defined it. Okay. Because already ants were doing that anyway. So that is the nature of, uh, what a working law is. Now, of course, you have a nature of the fact that people then change to some extent because change is the ultimate variable. People change and start doing different things. And that law that maybe was written 10, 20 years ago becomes like a shackle thing that's preventing further growth and evolution and evolvement. And the law needs to change in order to further enable and uh, amplify uh, further evolution, growth, progress, and so on. And that's actually literally what's happening with uh, the British uh, judicial system, where they say it's the only industry which, if you got qualified 400 years ago to work within it, 
that qualification would still today be valid and you could go straight to work <laughs> with the same qualification. It's that old. And it's got to the point where actually one of the reasons why the UK government is going through the turmoil and a lot of governments around the world are going through the same process, basically they're shackled by extremely good decisions that were made 400 years ago and worked perfectly. But today they're like, uh, like having to use, you know, one of those printer ports, yeah, mm -hmm. the big printer port on, on your MacBook Air. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it's like <laughs> printer cable, plug it into your MacBook. It's just not going to work. You're going to have to go and find some sort of switcher cable and then find drivers, maybe install Windows operating system on your MacBook and then find a driver for the like, printer that's out. It's just not going to work. It's not worth it. You may as well just buy a new printer or, or not print, you know, use a digital uh, smart contract. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and yet you, you're still forced to. Um, I think that's actually what, quite good what you said, because that's exactly the next topic as you move into people. You know, you said worker aunt, uh, soldier aunt, etc. So these roles and responsibilities as such. Um, I think just before we dive into that, the key thing that I want to remind is really the goal here is moving from ex uh, law as external responsibility to saying, okay, how can we actually minimize the amount of formal rules and how can we like go exponential in terms of the internal sense of agency, responsibility, innovation to each individual? Because that's where the cool stuff happens, you know? It's where people have a minimum framework to work with and then within that framework, they can be free. Um, and so actually, if you look at the next uh, two areas of design company, right? So people and systems. What's really interesting here is seeing, and we'll look at innovation, how can we flip that around? So if you look at 99.9% .9 of companies today, essentially they will hire a person, that person will have specific job responsibilities that are outlined in the job posting, and those job responsibilities fit into a system of how the company works. I mean, as we said last time, a company in its skeletal sense without life is just basically a bunch of systems. And so people are fitting into those systems. Um, and so just before we dive into that division of roles and responsibilities, I just wanted to look at, okay, how do we currently make rules inside organizations today? And so I just want to compare a government and its citizens to most companies today. Um, there are a lot of companies evolving in their management approach, but I'd say a majority of companies still operate like this. Um, and so if you look at the states, you know, you have essentially the legislature, so the members of parliament who are defining the law. You have the judiciary who are passing judgment based on issues and violations. And then you have the executive. Uh, it goes from the president who's actually giving the direction of the country down to the uh, worker behind the desk in the job seeker office that is signing someone on for the dole who are actually executing the law. And so why do we have this thing of division of powers or division of responsibilities? Well, you know, when you're at the scale of a country and you can handle weaponry, arms, huge amounts of money and enforce things over people's lives in a tyrannical fashion, I think it's pretty good to have some division there, even if it's a bit slower, just guaranteeing that you can't have the kind of dictatorship and that kind of effect. Now, if you look at an organization, and we're going to look at these kind of more modern organizations that you and I believe are the future, but in terms of how it's mostly worked up until now, so if we take, again, this legislative, judiciary, executive, 
Um, so the legislative, um, I would actually say that would that is you know the leadership, um, you know the people kind of defining the rules of the company, whether it's HR defining the handbook, whether it's you know the CEO saying this is the kind of culture that we have, uh, whether it's a senior manager saying these are our processes, um, and then you have the judiciary, which I think here we could um, we could align with middle management. Uh, feel free to tell me if you disagree, but essentially the judiciary and the middle management would be the people saying okay you have complied with the process, that is great, or you have not complied with the process, and therefore this is your punishment, getting fired, whatever. Um, and then find the executive, so the people actually executing all of this stuff, which is the workers at all levels. Um, and so what we have here, essentially, we have somebody setting the direction and the rules, we have another person saying, have we executed those rules? And then we have another person who's just supposed to live within those rules. And so that's a big issue there because a company is not like a country. It needs to evolve 100 or 1,000 times faster. It has a much smaller amount of people who need to be able to really react. And so having this separation where either you're a thinker, either you're a doer, cannot be sustainable. Uh, I mean, what are, what are your thoughts about that? Uh, well, so actually, here, here's my perhaps radical thought on this, which is that and we have somewhat of a trend at the moment, which is around, I don't want to mention any names, but certain business people becoming presidents of countries. Mm -hmm. right? and, and them saying that because I've run a business, I can run a country. And then some mm. other people uh, saying that country is not a business. Mm -hmm. uh, but weirdly, it's all a business, it's just different kinds of business with different purposes, right? So the government is a kind of business or a company with a purpose of creating a national level well-being for all its citizens. And that includes a bunch of systems and innovation and products that the government offers. And that's why you see nowadays the most uh, productive and interesting governments to look at that are really cutting edge are e-Estonia citizenship stuff, right? Why? Because they've actually said, this is a system yeah, for the people. Yeah? This, the purpose of the government here is to serve the people as effectively as possible and utilize the money of the people. It's a systemic thing that nowadays everyone's using smartphones, blah, 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 internet, digital, okay? The innovation bit is to do it as streamlined as possible, little as possible, handle the data nicely and all that stuff. The product is all the things that people need to do in order to interact with the government, various services, including APIs. Mm -hmm. The money is being utilized as effectively as possible because these things are the cheapest to run today and over time they become cheaper and cheaper. Mm -hmm. And then the growth happens by the government getting out of the way of the people as much as possible and actually creating the first fertile ground upon which more people can join that system and it goes around like that. Uh, so, so in many respects, a government is a business, but it's a, like an uti ultimate utility business that is supposed to get out of the way of people as much as possible. Just like you don't think about when you go to pour some tap water into a cup to drink. You don't think, 
oh my god i'm gonna have to fill in a form i'm going to have to do this and that you just pour the tap water yeah okay similar with electricity and all that stuff so ultimately the best businesses become utilities that nobody even thinks about and that's the best user experience where it's so good you don't even notice that you're using it yeah yeah, I mean, th definitely that whole thing of, you know, just because the thing is there, you have to spend as much time as possible to use it and you become almost masochistic in, okay, I've invested time, therefore this thing works. No, as you said, it's all about seamless user experience at all levels. Um, and so this kind of innovation in the way we do things is actually one thing I want to go a bit further on. Um, so I said previously, you know, uh, currently people are only seen as parts of a system. And so when you hear all this talk about, oh, I feel like I'm a, a cog in a greater mechanism or cog, you know, uh, essentially not doing much apart from just executing, I think there's just people saying, hey, I want more accountability. I want more responsibility, not necessarily as a manager, but just the ability to actually influence where they are. And so in that respect, I think if we look at how can we innovate on legality within a company, and when I say legality, I really mean, you know, the rules that we create, which are essentially systems for the company to operate better. Well, the first thing is, uh, I think we just got to stop with these ex nihilo processes. So just bringing in a bunch of consultants to design the perfect 72 page PowerPoint with all the perfect processes, um, that doesn't work. You know, essentially you want to go from something that's monolithic to something that is organic and alive. And so in that respect, um, I would say if you look at, so I know the UK doesn't have this. Um, in France, we have one. It's a constitution. It's essentially before even having laws, it's, okay, what is the one foundational document or thing, item, that can provide a philosophical groundwork for everything else? And so when people say, hey, you've got to have a company culture, you've got to define your values, that's actually really important. And I think that fills the role of that constitution, which is saying whatever laws we're going to make, here are the operating principles that these need to adhere to. Um, and then once we've done that, actually, I mentioned previously about the separation of powers. Um, so I think that's a whole other conversation about how does that work between private sector and government. I definitely agree with you that government could actually be run much more like a business, although there is still the whole thing of public interest instead of money, etc. cetera. Um, but essentially what I want to say is merging those three branches, so once we have a constitution that reflects the values set by leadership, well, why shouldn't it be the worker who's executing that is also the same worker that is participating or defining the process and the same worker that is judging themselves and saying, have I, have I been compliant with what we expected? Have I done what we set out to do? Um, and so in that respect, I think if we actually give people much more accountability, responsibility, and these three areas of power, so defining, judging, and executing, you're going to see stuff that's much more innovative. And if you look at the products of that, and then I'd love to hear your thoughts before we move on to money and growth, but what does that boil down to? Well, it means instead of having an employee handbook that is 722 pages and processes that take you ages to learn if you even have access to them, well, you very simply have a number of cultural values that affect everything you do. You have a certain set of information around HR policies, etc. So, you know, something very simple. Um, why should a 28 or 35 year old man or woman have to ask permission to go to the bathroom? Or why should they have to say, like they're in school, 
oh, I can't come in today because I'm sick. Here's a doctor note. No, let's give people more accountability and respect and trust, you know. And if people aren't, are abusing that trust, get them out of the system. But otherwise, if we look at the artifacts, well, a very simple employee handbook and then a clear way to evolve systems, but systems that are documented, shareable with everyone and are organic. So it's no more a law set in stone of how to do a process. It's no more somebody saying, oh, I got to do this because that's the way the process works. It's somebody saying, okay, here's how it currently works. Here's why I'm doing this. So the purpose, does it make sense or can I improve it? So it's, uh, I'd love to hear your thoughts on that. Uh, yeah, so I, I mean, basically, there's lots of things that you touched on there. But it, uh, effectively, you, when you look at the history of management science, you know, it was the art of Kaizen, okay, the mm -hmm. ever-lasting improvement on micro levels, okay? Mm -hmm. It is, is something actually that was introduced to Japanese by Americans, right? Mm -hmm. uh, and, and then it's called Japanese uh, management practice. But actually, it's Americans who, who brought it in. And if you look at America, the reason why, one of the reasons why America grew so massively is because of the Kaizen approach yeah, that they took on a systemic level, like people, yeah, people were doing that. Uh, maybe they were doing that unconsciously because you know the the history of America is that they, they came from Britain that was already shackling a lot of people in, so they went mm -hmm. to U.S. where there was a lot more freedom, and then they could do the new things, right? And then that kind of faded off over time. Why? Because the system started shackling down those people as opposed to freeing them up. So the 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 that's why they now talk about like the American dream. Uh, is a lie because you could be like asleep to to believe in it. Um, so uh, and, and that's a big problem for uh, land of the dreams, right? Because it's literally the dream is not supposed to stay a dream. It's supposed to become reality. But more and more people are finding they can't manifest the dream, yeah, mm -hmm. because the system is shackling them down. And that's why you know you see uh, the the battle against the system, yeah, uh, being talked about. Um, and so, so yeah, you mentioned principles and the reason why principles are powerful is because they're not supposed to shackle people down. They're supposed to be the spirit, like they talk in the Supreme Court, the spirit of the law. Yeah? This is where actual spiritual intelligence comes into play, where it's like you actually have a deeper level of intelligence other than the mind that's usually been programmed by psychosocial uh, repetitive patterns, okay, that we hear from surrounding. But that deeper spiritual intelligence is one that's guiding us always towards higher levels of peace, prosperity, progress, etc., etc. Uh, seems to be always like the P words are the ones, planet, peace, prosperity, progress. There's the powerful <laughs> ones, uh, power, yeah? Uh, so... So it's that that is supposed to be somehow enshrined into what is an ever-evolving system, cultural, um, collective, and so on. And that is really why I'm also saying that the government is ultimately that, because citizens are literally paying for the government to serve them. But what you have in practice is that the government is sucking the people's uh, people's money and energy you know money money is energy is in currency currency mm -hmm. uh, and sucking the energy from the people and not actually putting the value back to the people creating progress peace prosperity power 
empowering people. And that's why you have various kind of things that happen famously in France, like revolutions, etc., where they like change the system. Yeah. And that's, you know, that's that. So, so this is a, a ever uh, running, uh, you know, uh, dynamic between people and quote unquote power. <laughs> no, I, I mean, you know, as a Frenchman, I would say also as French people, we just like to generally voice our complaint, you know, so, how do you recognize a French person? Well, they're probably complaining about something, you know. But definitely, yeah. I mean, the whole revolution, if you look at that, it was just us saying, hey, let's create a whole new system. But the issue was, uh, although the French Revolution was great, is that it was very destructive because we just wiped everything away. There was a lot of bloodshed. And the thing is, you can't really evolve. You know, revolution is good, but evolution, not so much. Uh, sorry, other way around, yeah. Evolution is the way to go. And so you can, if you only rev, rev, um, revolt yourself, you're only opposing, you're not actually proposing. And so yeah. that is one thing that is absolutely key. At um, Rowley, so actually, we had a principle that was called uh, revolution through evolution. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So a, a continuous uh, growth yeah. journey. Uh, and so in that respect, I know we've got to go soon. So um, I think... What's really interesting here, just to look, okay, so we talked about, you know, what is the law, you know, how does that apply in different areas? Um, you know, one of the things we actually showed here is that one of the cool things about design company, people comes after purpose and systems comes after people. So exactly. instead of having people subjected to arbitrary <laughs> systems, people are the interpreters of the spirit of the purpose and they then design those systems which will serve them instead of the other way around. And so if we look at that, you know, if somebody's listening to this and saying, okay, that's cool, but how is that going to translate into my accounting? Well, very simply, um, there's two aspects. On the cost side, um, if everybody shares the same culture and operating principles, you probably need to produce an order of magnitude less in terms of rules, um, enforcement, etc. So you just have a lot of less useless BS to deal with. Um, and on the revenue side, well, if our processes are monolithic, instead of having some document that is in binder 7Z in the third room, well, you now have organic living documents that people are evolving over time, which means that a new team member comes on board, they can assimilate what's happening much faster and therefore be more productive, and an existing team member who's already executing a process can now improve that process to be in line with the purpose of the organization. And so that's really important. You know, you can capitalize on opportunities much faster. You can resolve problems much quicker. So for example, if you look at Amazon, I believe that the, all the customer service reps are empowered without going to management to, to provide up to $100 worth of uh, resolution. may not be Amazon, but it's, a, it's one of the companies that's very well known for yeah. its customer service. Mm -hmm. So giving this ability to say, okay, people can actually be judges much faster and giving them more power and just giving them greater responsibility in terms of adherence to culture and principles instead of just stupid rules that are there because some guy decided about them. Um, and so if you find translate that to growth, well, I think this is the key thing. Growth is kind of the yin-yang of purpose because purpose is what do we set out to do? But then growth is how do we measure what we set out to do. And so what you find quite interesting is what you are measuring kind of becomes what you are doing. And so in that respect, I think, you know, laws and the systems we build 
should be serving the achievement of our KPIs rather than KPIs serving him stupid laws. So for example, if you look at call centers, having something stupid like amount of calls made per hour when you're in customer service doesn't make sense. You should be measuring customer satisfaction. Um, how are people feeling, etc. Um, and so in that respect, I think as well, just having you know numbers that are not just monetary, but also immaterial, and that, re well, well, I mean, quantitative numbers, but they reflect stuff that's not necessarily financial, that really reflect the kind of company you want to be having is really key. Because ultimately, you can talk about your values, your laws, etc. Um, it's all about the numbers that you produce at the end. And those numbers should be centered on something purposeful, meaningful, and useful to others, which reflect the society that we want to build collectively. Exactly. And, and, and here is the key. If you connect the purpose with growth, you can have purposeful growth. Yes. And, uh, and growing on purpose. And, um, you know, then that becomes really, really cool thing. Practical example, I worked with a company called Bright Talk, uh, which is now the fastest growing media company in Silicon Valley, heading towards a billion dollar exit, uh, whose revenues have tenfolded over a few years, whereas they were stagnating for literally like seven, eight years. Uh, the, the, the main driver towards that exponential change in growth was the fact that I actually at one point said, what's the purpose of this company? And nobody knew the answer. And I said, we could really all benefit from having even just a crappy purpose statement that at least everyone could look up to and go, okay, that's our purpose. Let's make that happen. What they ended up doing is they ended up bringing in this like formal purpose definition management process, blah, blah, blah. That turned into like a month long ordeal of what is our purpose. But they clicked, at least clicked onto the fact that, oh, we need to have a purpose statement. And eventually they, uh, you know, distilled down that purpose statement and then everyone started aligning their energies and currency to um to to that purpose and what happened is the fastest growing media company in silicon valley uh and and they've got they've got i can't even keep an, keep a count anymore of how many revenue streams they've got in that one platform it, it taught me a big lesson that one platform can have seven, eight, ten different revenue streams piping in. It's, it's an unheard of thing in my experience, but Bright Talk is pulling it off still today effectively. Uh, and it's all because of the purpose statement that, they, that I instigated for them to come up with and then they designed it through some sort of management process. Uh, so, so there you go. That's the power of purpose. <laughs> well, the, yeah, the power of critical thought. I think, you know, just as a final thought of today, you know, last time we said, well, you know, it's all about the truth. Well, today I'd say it's all about questioning the, what is presented to you as truth by others mm -hmm. and saying, does that make sense? So even you and I, when mm -hmm. we work with people, I don't expect them to say, oh, you are gurus, you are 100% correct. I expect them to say, okay, to challenge us to say, why does that make sense? And then, you know, from that derive the truth, and then from that derive the systems, that will allow us to implement this truth that we all seek to reveal. Fantastic, my brother. That's, that's it. There we go. Thank you so much for another one. Yeah. Looking Peace. forward to the next one. Take yeah. care. Yeah, nice one. All the best. Bye. Bye-bye.